I want to tell you about a podcast series I think Future Hindsight listeners will really like. It's called Amended. The host, Laura Free, is a historian of women and politics. And on the show, she and her guests travel back to the 1800s and up to the present day to cover stories that completely reframe how Americans think about the struggle for women's equal voting rights. The women's suffrage story is often told as if sex was the only battleground for equality in America. But amended centers the stories of women who also committed their lives to fighting exclusion and discrimination based on race, citizenship, and class. If we want to understand why voting rights are still threatened today, we need to know what's been gained, what's been lost, and what's left to be done. Subscribe to Amended wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started, I want to tell you about something new that we're trying. All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. So we created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to your friends, family, or anyone else you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. It's a two-step process. First, follow the link in our show notes to get your personal referral link, which you can then send around. Once you share our show with five friends who then download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded future hindsight moleskin notebook. Yup a real moleskin notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen change makers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Bernard Harcourt. He's a contemporary critical theorist, advocate, law and political science professor at Columbia University, and the author of The Counter-Revolution, How Our Government Went to War Against Its Own Citizens. This episode is a perfect complement to last week's episode on law enforcement. If you're wondering about the philosophical and legal underpinnings of the way the US government views public safety, this conversation will shed light on how we came to where we are today. Since 9-11, everything from the torture under the George Bush administration to the indefinite detention at Guantanamo, since then, throughout all of the administrations, to drone strikes uh, against the innocent victims are extraordinary and exceptional and unheard of and intolerable. But the point I try to make in the book is that it's actually become the way that we govern and that it's not a state of exception but it's become a state of legality we started to govern ourselves in this way as a form of strategic what i call counterinsurgency governing which comes from the wars and the colonies and from uh, counterinsurgency practice and theory we talk about legalizing brutality militarizing police, 
and thinking about abolition democracy as a beginning point to help us find a way out. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mila, for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you back on the podcast. You were our very first guest, and I'm so, so thankful that you agreed to be on just as we were starting. I read your book, The Counter-Revolution, How Our Government Went to War Against Its Own Citizens. And I think it explains so much about our current political moment, which is something we don't really discuss very often, that we think of this time as an aberration of the norm, as an exceptional time. In many senses, of course, that's true. We have a president who is really outside of the norm. But the system within which we reside, you argue, in fact, is now the norm. It's not an exception. So my first question is, what does counter-revolution mean in the way that you use it in the book? So, yeah, I mean, you put your finger precisely on the most important thing, which is whether we are in a state of exception or whether this is actually something different. And my objective in writing the book was really to suggest that this isn't a state of exception in the United States today. Since 9-11, everything from the torture under the George Bush administration to the indefinite detention at Guantanamo since then, throughout all of the administrations, to drone strikes uh, against the innocent victims, and even of the assassination, say, of an American citizen abroad, the kind of summary execution with a drone strike, are extraordinary and exceptional and unheard of and intolerable. But the point I try to make in the book is that it's actually become the way that we govern and that it's not a state of exception, but it's become a state of legality. We started to govern ourselves in this way as a form of strategic, what I call counterinsurgency governing, which comes from the wars in the colonies and from uh, counterinsurgency practice and theory that was developed during Vietnam or during the war in Algeria, Malaysia, etc. There's actually a logic to this, and what we're seeing in a lot of its manifestations is a strategy of governing. And one of the main strategies is to render things legal that would normally be abhorrent or abnormal or violations of the norm. And so when I use the word counter-revolution, I'm using it in a somewhat specific sense to get at this idea that we're governing in a kind of counterinsurgency mode of governing, but without actually there being a counterinsurgency, an insurgency on our territory, so that it's almost like we're governing in a counter-revolutionary way, although there's not even the indication of a revolution. And that's what I mean by the counter-revolution, particularly when I use it with a big C and I capitalize it, because I think it's a new way of governing ourselves, but that has been divorced in any way from the underlying circumstances that gave birth to this kind of way of governing, which was insurrections in the colonies. Right. You say that essentially Americans, our own citizens, have become the target of our government's counterinsurgency strategies as if we were the insurgents. How did that happen? How do we get here? 
Right. In a number of different steps. First of all, the counterinsurgency practice and logics were developed by the Western powers, France, uh, Great Britain, the United States, during the anti-colonial uprisings. So basically during the war in Indochina for France and Algeria, during the war in Vietnam for the United States. And it gave rise to a certain number of strategies. The idea that there's a, a passive majority or a large population that could go and that could be swayed one way or the other either towards the insurgents or towards the counterinsurgents, and that you have to be able to parse out the small insurgency. You have to be able to locate them, figure out who they are through total information awareness and surveillance, and then eliminate them, and then win the hearts and minds of the masses. Uh, of course, that was the strategy that we used in Vietnam, and those were developed in the 1950s and the 1960s during the anti-colonial wars. They came back very powerfully uh, after 9-11. And so basically, the United States military embraced counterinsurgency theory after 9-11 in the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan. General David Petraeus, who was in charge of all American and allied forces, he rewrote in 2006 the U.S military manual for counterinsurgency. And so the first wave really was a rebirth of counterinsurgency theory with the war in Iraq. And eventually, and, and still to this day, the main military strategy that we're using in those wars and in those conflicts in Afghanistan is a counterinsurgency strategy. So it started first militarily, and then gradually those logics expanded to general foreign policy for the United States. So all of a sudden, we were starting to use the same logics of a, a small active minority that needs to be eliminated, mostly through drone strikes, in non-warfare areas. So for instance, in Pakistan or in Somalia, we began to do total information awareness uh, at a global level, trying to get all of the information that we could about all populations around the world. And we started to use drone strikes, which are targeted interventions, trying to knock out insurgents outside of the battlefield area. Eventually what happened, and this is the one that I am most concerned with, is that we brought it all home to roost, really. We brought it back to the United States and started to adopt those same counterinsurgency logics and strategies against our own population. We saw it, for instance, early on with the hyper-militarized policing responses to protests in the United States during the original Black Lives Matter protests in 2014 after the Eric Garner chokehold, after the uh, Ferguson uprisings, we all of a sudden saw the police appearing as if they were military. Those images were, were really shocking, but what they reflected was that we were internalizing the logics of counterinsurgency and starting to apply them here domestically. And in part, this was the product of things like the um, federal government Department of Defense procurement programs that allowed local police departments to buy excess 
weaponry from the war in Iraq. And there were armored vehicles being purchased by police departments and all of the accoutrements of the military gear and equipment. We also started to see, for instance, the use of kind of a different logic in police encounters with suspects. We saw that in Dallas, where they basically used a drone to kill a suspect, which is something that one doesn't do in a domestic policing context, because the idea is to capture a a suspect alive so that they'll have a trial in criminal court. The place where it's been most evident has been in the creation of the internal enemy. This notion of the internal enemy is really a core piece of counterinsurgency theory. At first, it was practically all Muslims, essentially. The idea that we needed to possibly start a registration process or that Muslims were not working with law enforcement, that we have a real problem with Muslims, all of this was what Trump was saying. And of course, that was creating Muslims as an internal enemy. That precisely is the logic of counterinsurgency a theory identifying that internal enemy and trying to destroy them while trying to win the hearts and minds of the ordinary Americans. What we have now really is an application of those counterinsurgency practices and theories on domestic ground right here in the United States. Yeah, that's very evident. One of the things that you touched on earlier was sort of about how this counterinsurgency mode of governing has become legalized. I think that explains a lot in terms of how the police is totally militarized in the way that we appear as Americans to have lost our rights to due process, you know, to be killed by a drone as a suspected criminal. One of the examples you had was with Anwar al-Avlaki, who was killed in Yemen, and he was an American citizen. And I feel like people are not sufficiently complaining about this. Why do you think people don't complain about the legalization of these measures? The United States is a very legalistic country. Our culture is really oriented towards law, litigation, and protection of rights through the legal system. And so, in a way, you would kind of expect that there might be more contestation, and there certainly is uh, a lot of contestation in this country over due process rights. But the flip side of that is that there's also a long history in this country of rendering things legal. In other words, making sure that they are legal, transforming our notions of due process so that they accommodate the way that we govern. We've seen that flip side in this domestication of the counter-revolution. We saw it with regard to the torture memos and the way in which the torture that was administered by the CIA and other operatives under the Bush administration ultimately was rendered legal through all of the torture memos, which were these legal briefs written by folks in the Department of Justice, 
they began to substitute really for judicial opinions. It's almost as if the executive branch was becoming the judiciary and rendering legal all of these practices of torture by redefining what torture was. What they tried to do is to say that actually torture only happens when there is organ failure, for instance, right? And of course, organ failure is when somebody's about to die. It was all this way in which we were kind of legalizing and making it satisfy our standards of due process, which in a way is exactly the flip side of the litigiousness of this country. It's rendering things that we would think are unacceptable legal. You were mentioning the drone strike, which was a summary execution of an American citizen abroad. It took 41 pages to put this into an acceptable legal framework that it wasn't a violation of due process. We've done that in this country again and again to the point where most of these practices, for instance, the detention of persons at Guantanamo Bay right now, it's fully legal. Here are the individuals, right, who've been imprisoned at Guantanamo for 18 years and who've never been tried, who aren't going to be tried, who haven't been properly accused, who don't get to see the evidence against them, and who are being indefinitely detained on an American base that is located in Cuba. Now, you would think that that would be an elementary, a basic violation of American due process. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the Bill of Rights. And yet, here we are. It's all fully legalized, rationalized, made to satisfy due process. If you just take a step back and you ask, wait a minute, how is this possible? You, you have to say to yourself, this is not what we consider to be normal or acceptable by American standards. And so it's in that rendering legal that so much gets done. Now, I, I think you see it as well in the context of the police killings and the police brutality that we have been uh, experiencing, and that finally has become visible because of video recordings, which was something that we really didn't know about before. There are more than, you know, a thousand police killings uh, per year uh, on average. And we've seen that many of them aren't lawful use of lethal force by the police, but actually murders. And what we've seen is that in so many of these cases, the police excess violence, lethal violence, gets legalized as well. And it becomes part of the fabric of society. These practices become normalized in a way that we wouldn't expect. You see it also with the use of particular tactics recently. The day that President Trump went to have his infamous photo op at the church across the street from the White House back in June, an Apache helicopter and flying it really low over the protesters, about 45 feet above the protesters, which creates hurricane winds, forces on people, and so they disperse and whatnot. But again, it's a strategy that becomes legal, that you can't really contest it as a legal matter, and it becomes acceptable in these ways. And so all of these practices, you know, as you were suggesting, are legalized, and then in that process, they become normal, really, and much more common. Are you looking for a new podcast to take your mind off the next round of lockdowns? 
Or perhaps you're a fan of interview podcasts like ours and hope to expand your auditory horizons? Well, I've got just the podcast for you. And I'm not just saying that because he sponsored this week's show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is a great example of interviews done right. Jordan talks with some of the most interesting and influential people alive today, from athletes to business leaders and from scientists to spies. His guests all bring a unique perspective to the world we live in. If you want to understand what makes successful people tick and hear what advice they can offer, I really urge you to check him out. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. Yeah, I think one of the things that really struck me in your book is that this brutal violence is at the heart of the counterinsurgency system, that it is part and parcel, like it cannot be separated. I think that's right. I mean, most of the counterinsurgency strategies and discourse are very brutal. I would say that the initial pickup by George W. Bush and his administration was particularly brutal because of the torture, because of the indefinite detention. During the Obama administration, it became slightly more legalistic, less directly brutal, but nevertheless uh, maintaining the logics. The summary execution of an American citizen abroad was under the Obama administration. The use of drones really exponentially increased right after Obama took office. And that now under the Trump administration, we have a, a different kind of counterinsurgency uh, strategy. This one is particularly, I would say, associated with a more white supremacist racial paradigm. We've heard this very clearly in Trump's language and the way in which he is speaking directly to the extreme right uh, faction and part of his base. He has a real discourse of trying to always make clear that anything that could be considered anti-racism, any anti-racist efforts are themselves racist. That is the classic and most important move of the new white supremacist movements in this country and in Europe. It's to turn anti-racism into racism, anything that could be conceived of as racist against white persons. The result is that a lot of the violence that we're seeing now, particularly excessive militarized response to peaceful protests, is always being placed within the context of racial tension. And Trump is trying to aggravate the racial tension by creating internal enemies that are racialized. It's a real way in which trying to turn African-Americans, persons of color, into an internal enemy in this country and to deal with them very brutally and violently. I think it's a perfect reflection of counterinsurgency. It's also a reflection of this president's way in which he is unfolding 
those counterinsurgency logics. In a way, he is the perfect president in a counterinsurgency system. You couldn't have picked a better person to take advantage of this paradigm of governing. I think you're entirely right that he is the master at seizing on it, and he has pushed it in a particular direction, which I would argue has dimensions of proto-fascism and authoritarianism to it. But predominantly, it's a white supremacist, nationalistic kind of approach. One immediately saw it, of course, with his discourse about Muslims. One immediately saw it with his discourse about migrants. Anytime there's a threat to his authority or there's a risk of his um, losing popularity, he goes directly to the core principles of counterinsurgency theory. He creates internal enemies and talks about how we have to eliminate them. It's the discourse right now of protesters, right? It's creating fear about protesters as if protesters and identified as persons of color are going to come to your suburbs and plunder, steal, and kill the, the middle class. That whole discourse is counterinsurgency theory right there and practice. And I, I think we've seen it you know, come alive in a way that uh, we couldn't even have imagined back in uh, 2015, 2016. Well, one of the things that you argued in the book is that terror is what truly conquers and colonizes the hearts and minds of the masses. We can really see that the people who are buying his narrative and are afraid all the time about this potential colored marauder in the suburbs, ruining their lives and robbing them. And really, actually, I think striking terror in the hearts on both sides. So is this a clue to undo this new form of tyranny for us? Well, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to undo. There aren't easy keys to just kind of opening up a new and alternative path forward because so much of this logic gets deeply internalized. And as a result, it's not easy to redress. The fear that you were talking about is, is certainly uh, something that can both promote this way of thinking and promote the counterinsurgency logics, but hopefully it might also serve to resist uh, some of these ways of thinking. I've been trying to think through these times, particularly these recent times of crisis and the second wave, really, of the movement for black lives, what I'm starting to think is that this focus on the need to address the excesses of the police and of the prison and the movement to abolish the police, which is a new way to speak about it, really, might bring us back to the earlier ideas about what W.E.B. Du Bois called abolition democracy. It's a term that he developed and he coined in a book he wrote in 1935 called Black Reconstruction, which was all about the end of Reconstruction in this country. And specifically what I have in mind is Du Bois's notion of abolition democracy, which Angela Davis picked up 
in her work at the turn of the 21st century. It's this idea that actually the abolition of slavery was only accomplished in a negative sense. This is what Du Bois and Angela Davis say, that it was only accomplished in the idea that slavery was ended and was abolished, but it never moved forward to the more productive and positive agenda of putting into place institutions that would replace slavery. And because we weren't able to put in place the institutions that would have supported persons who had been formerly enslaved and made them part of society and given them the tools and the ability and the education and the employment and all of the resources necessary to become full-fledged members of a society on equal footing with others, because that project was ended and we never had that positive part of the project, that we're still, in a way, combating the legacy of slavery in this country. And I think that that's a very productive way to think about these issues. And I'd like to think that there's a way to tie that to the unwinding, really, of counterinsurgency theory, or what I call the counter-revolution. It can't be the case, simply, that we get rid of the practices that are at the heart of the counter-revolution. So it can't be that we just get rid of Guantanamo, that we get rid of the use of drones, that we get rid of uh, hyper-militarized policing forces and all of this uh, police violence and police killings. It's, it wouldn't be enough, really, to get rid of those without coming up with a different way to govern, a positively, a, a full-fledged, different paradigm of governing. And so that, I think, is what we have to work on. It will go with new institutions, different institutions, but um, it will require imagining a different future and a different way to govern than through these methods of, you know, of punitiveness and um, vindictiveness and what I call the counter-revolution. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to advance this positive form of governance? All of us need to be more politically engaged, more vocal and more present in the public sphere, making our claims to justice. We are at a time in American history where it's an unusual moment of crisis. I, I think it's almost unparalleled. We are at a precipice right now. And not only are we at a precipice because of the dire political contestation that's taking place right now, but also because of the larger issues of, of global climate change and global issues of inequality. So we've got a number of crises that we're facing right now. And I think more than ever, it's time for us to be heard in public. So that's The first thing, I think, it's important for everyone uh, to take responsibility, uh, to be part of uh, political practice of expression and social movement for black lives, but also for climate change and other questions of global inequality. And then the second thing I would say is that we need to understand better the ways in which we govern ourselves because a lot of this happens 
through an internalization process. Things become normal to us. I mean, how many people are thinking about Guantanamo Bay and the detention of folks there for 18 years right now? It's almost as if we've kind of forgotten that it's happening. But we need to be thinking about how it is that we govern. And then we need to try and figure out what would be an alternative way. And the first part, protesting, oftentimes can prefigure new forms of democratic governance. That was part of what the Occupy movement was about. They were prefiguring and trying to understand in interesting ways how democracy can happen. What are the processes? How do people have assemblies and talk to each other and not get shouted down and allow different voices to be heard and not have any particular leaders take over and uh, impose their will on others? Those are all things that were being experimented with through protest. I think more than anything, what is clear right now is how fragile our democracy is and how close it is to being severely stress-tested, to say the least. Yeah, that's right. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Well, what makes me hopeful is learning from my students and seeing the extraordinary energy, imaginativeness, creativity, and thirst for justice among my students, really. Both the undergraduates at Columbia College that I teach and the law students at Columbia Law School and the other graduate students, they're the ones that give me hope. And I I know people often say that, you know, the future generations are the ones who give it, but really, We have such extraordinary, motivated, justice-seeking young students. To watch them is just amazing. So last year with a brilliant colleague, Alexis Hogue, we ran a course called the Abolition Practicum. And it's actually a practicum. So we work on cases, we work on policy interventions while we also read a lot and think in a seminar format. One of our projects was to figure out a path towards abolition. And it was in that context that a few undergrads started this project called the Digital Abolitionist. That's now an incredible ongoing project here at Columbia. And these students have done extraordinary work and they're mobilized and they're full of positive energy and taking care of self in the way that... um, We didn't used to, when we were mobilizing ourselves, there's a self-care and a compassion and a solidarity among the younger generation today that I think is truly remarkable. That's really what gives me hope that uh, we'll be able to maintain this fragile democracy of ours. Yes, I hope you're right that we will be able to maintain this fragile democracy. Thank you so much for being on Future Hindsight. Thank you, Mila. It's been a pleasure and wonderful to be back. Connecting all of the dots and revealing the whole picture makes it possible to see our government in a holistic way. From this point of view, many of the troublesome practices like the relentless police misconduct and persistent hateful discourse make sense. 
governing from a counterinsurgency logic relies on creating internal enemies and of rendering unacceptable things such as extrajudicial killings as legal. What I found most disturbing is that I have indeed forgotten about the prisoners in Guantanamo who've been there for 18 years. I've also not thought about how vulnerable we felt in the wake of 9-11 and how this background served as fertile ground to infringe on our rights to due process. American voters have already decided that they're ready for a new way of governance. I don't know what that will eventually look like, but I do know that it is within our power to demand a more just way, to change our public discourse and to elect representatives who will govern in alignment with our values. Next week, our guest is Leon Botstein. He's president of Bard College, chancellor of the Open Society University Network and music director of the American Symphony Orchestra. We discuss why democracy will only work when people have an open, critical mind and therefore how important it is to deliver high-quality education all the way from kindergarten, but most critically in high school and college. The pandemic has sort of torn the mask off the reality which we always knew was there, but were afraid to admit, the near total bankruptcy of the American educational system. The assumption is that after finishing high school, the individual is prepared to take a place as a citizen and as a working individual in the society. But as it is now, and what COVID has shown is um, how poor it's been, Our secondary system does not prepare our nation for citizenship and doesn't prepare them for the world of work. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sayan. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts futurehindsight.com or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 